everyone, welcome to episode two of The Equitist. Today, we get to speak about how to make democracy sexy again. I'm Colomb. And this is Andrea. And today, I'm very excited because we not only get to speak about democracy and being sexy, but actually we have a wonderful guest with us, Digital Minister Audrey Tang from Taiwan. So we are going to interview her to ask her about Taiwan's best practices. We'll talk about issues with democracies. We'll talk about how democracy is backtracking and about incredible innovation that we can seize in order to increase participation and as a result, make the world more equitable. First things first, why are we doing this episode? In yesterday's episode, we talked about the need to create a more equitable world. We talked about the fact that to create a more equitable world, we need to change radically the system. And we think that this comes through democracy. We, the people, and with all of our amazing differences, whether they be linguistic, socioeconomic, of nationality and else, come from very different realities. And this means that we have a lot to contribute, each and every one of us. We are all experts in our own lives, and we all have a lot of best practices we can share. However, in today's democratic world, if we're even lucky enough to be able to live in a democracy, it's very difficult for us to participate, right? The way we normally do it is we vote once every four or five years. If if we vote, because actually most people don't vote regularly. We see, for example, in the US presidential election, around only half of the people that could vote go to the polls. So we see that actually people don't even use their right to vote anymore. Exactly. And this is once every few years. And then the rest of the time, we protest. I love protesting. I'm French. It's a national sport. And I organize a lot of protests myself. We protest and we feel like we can't get heard. And that's very problematic. To create an equities revolution, to have a more equitable world, we need to ensure that everyone gets to be heard. And everyone, this means minorities as well. So it cannot be the tyranny of the majority. I'm not talking about direct democracy. I'm saying we need to be able to participate. And I want to say something here because I think that sometimes people are like, why is it needed? Maybe we can have wonderful policies and ideas if just a few clever people are leading us. But it's impossible for any human being to understand the variety of needs of issues that people face. Even if I study my whole life, even if I was the, the, most, the most informed person on this planet, I would not understand how someone with a totally different background for me is feeling right now or is the, the issues that they are facing right now. So at The Equitist, we try to understand how we can create a new different world, how we can create a utopia of a world that is fair and free for all. As mentioned, for us, democracy is the best way to get there, but not today's democracy. Today's democracy is inadequate and it's heartbreaking. And the truth is, democracy is losing. So not only is it losing against authoritarianism, we see that democracy is backtracking across the world, right? Yeah. So I, I want to give you a few data points that are very impressive. First of all, since 2019, less than half of the planet live in a democracy. And that's an outstanding turn because up to the first uh, years of this um, millennia, actually, democracy was winning the battle. We are increasing a democratic planet. And then in the last 15 years, things have changed. And since 2019, less than 50% of the people on this planet live in a democracy. And that's not all. Even people living in a democracy, three out of four of them experience democratic deterioration, which means that you had more rights before than today. 
it's really scary. It's something that never happened before. Again, like in the last 200 years, we have seen democracy winning, growing, bringing freedom to all of us. And now we are on the defensive environment. And if you think about it, you probably saw it in the media, right? The last few years have been full of incredible protests from people taking up the risk and the opportunity to fight for their future. I remember one image that really marked me was the front page of quite a few French newspapers of the Hong Kong protest when they started a few years back. Like hundreds of thousands of people that went in the street and defied one of the most authoritarian regimes, the Chinese Communist Party, in order to safeguard their future, their rights and their democracy. And I remember that for me it was like, wow, this is the way of going. They inspired an, an entire generation, that peaceful protest and, and resilience and constant protesting really took the world by surprise and I think inspired so many protests. Having hosted quite a few protests ourselves, we had people from Venezuela, from Sudan, from Nigeria, from Belarus saying that Hong Kongers completely inspired them. And then in a matter of months, we saw China completely cracking down on Hong Kong. We saw some of the leaders of the Hong Kong protests, like Joshua Wong, imprisoned, probably for years. And this, for me, really represents the downward trend and how authoritarianism is gaining ground fast. The same happened in Belarus. And there is also a very concrete example, which is Russia in the 90s and early 2000s seemed to be on the path of becoming a full democracy. And then now there's no one... Uh, in, in their same main, uh, mind would, would say that Russia is a full democracy. Oh, we see it also in Turkey. Turkey was on a very good path to become a, a very solid democracy. And then we've seen a very strong deterioration. Sadly, what happened in Hong Kong has already happened elsewhere and it, it will happen in other countries. I think about Hungary, I think about Poland. As a European, I know this reference quite well. We see democracy backsliding very fast. So that if what happened in Hong Kong, what happened in Belarus, what's happening in Poland and Hungary, what happened in Venezuela, to us anything is that rights can be taken away extremely fast. Yeah. You don't necessarily notice it as it goes, and then you are left with no longer any democratic rights. There's a second issue, which is that in democracies themselves, democracy is backsliding. This means that democratic standards are going down. So I actually pulled up some data about this. Nearly 75% of the world's population lived last year in a country that faced democratic deterioration. This is according to Freedom House. And I can give you some concrete example. India, which used to be one of the world's most populous democracy, dropped from a status of freedom to partly free. This is really worrying. At the same time, I think we can all remember what happened after the presidential elections in the US with Trump refusing to concede after Joe Biden's victory. This is an attack on democracy in itself. And related to this example, I remember seeing a chart where it's interesting to see how the trust of Americans in government has also declined drastically. So if you go back to the 60s, 80% of Americans had trust in their governments. Right now, we are hovering around 25 to 30%. So you see that deterioration of trust and the way people see governments can lead to uh, very sad moments. I'll give you a last example um, about France. Since I'm French, it's easier to criticize France than other countries <laughs> for me. France was ranked last year by The Economist as a floated democracy. And this is very worrying. But an interesting fact that goes with it 
is that a Pew survey revealed that 73% of French people polled believed that the political system needs to be completely changed, overhauled. So it shows that not only are democracies going down, but people no longer believe in the political system in place because they don't believe that it's capable of delivering what they need. But this is exactly linked to what we discussed before, and I think this is actually at the center of the problem we are facing. If people don't trust government, don't see the government as evolved uh, as the rest of society has, it's a huge issue because if you don't trust, you don't vote. If you don't vote, then society tends to decay, and then you might have authoritarian uh, regimes popping up, you might have people playing on fears, populists, nationalists, and so on. And I think that's a real challenge we face in 2022, and sadly, we will be already late. So we are almost done with the bad news. <laughs> I'm sorry for those few minutes of bad news. Before we jump into what incredible world could exist, could be born, if we could all be heard, let's take one minute to understand what democracy actually is. So Andrea and I did an interesting exercise. We spent a Sunday talking to randomly met people in a park in London, asking them what democracy was to them and how they understood it. And I think the answers were quite interesting. Absolutely. We had some people saying democracy is power to the people. So very simple and strong uh, definition. Some others said like uh, voting every three to five years. In general, there was a good understanding of democracy of the traditional way we see democracy. So I thought that I would actually put up two definitions of democracy before tracing it back to its origins so that we could better understand it. One of them says that democracy is defined as a form of government in which people choose leaders by voting. So I found this very reductive. I think <laughs> democracy is way more than this. So I'll give you another one. Democracy is also defined as a government in which the supreme power is vested in the people and exercised by them directly or indirectly through a system of representation, usually involving periodically held free elections. Very cool. But here again, the focus is always on elections. But democracy is much more than this. But I really like the aspect of the supreme power being vested in the people. I think it's very powerful. I completely agree. And interestingly enough, I don't know if everyone knows that the first democracy was um, in Athens in the 5th century before Christ. And the Greek idea of democracy was quite different from today's because in Athens, all adult citizens were required to take an active part in government. So it wasn't just about voting. They were required to act and fulfill their duty. And those who didn't would be fined. By the way, quick disclaimer, women, children and slaves were not considered citizens, so they did not vote or take part in democracy. But there was an aspect of actively taking part in the government and in democratic life, which I think is very interesting, and that I think we often lost today. Because democracy for me, if you didn't guess it by now, is an incredible concept. I think democracy is one of the best concepts the human race has ever come up with. I think, however, we completely failed it. There's one of my favorite sayings that says that democracy is never won, but always remains to be won. And I think it's beautiful because it's very true. Not only does it need to be protected and defended on a day-to-day -day basis, democracy is an ideal state we need to constantly redefine and fight for. And that, that means that we need to innovate it. The fact for me that when we look at ancient Greece, people had a more active role to play than in most countries today, shows a real issue because not only did we lose that, but now we also have very innovative tools that enable us to participate in a meaningful manner, online and offline. Instead, we don't, and we are not afforded this opportunity. And even in very late terms, it's incredible that we still vote exactly like our grandparents or great-grandparents would vote. 
I think just wrong in today's society not to update the tools and the methodologies to partake in society. Exactly. So that's why we need to completely overhaul the system. <laughs> so as mentioned with this long intro into what's wrong with democracy and where democracy comes from, we want to make democracy sexy again. Let's do it. We think it's needed. And for this, we don't just mean one change in policy by which citizens will be able to participate slightly more once in a while. We honestly believe that to have a better world, a more fair one, a more prosperous one for individuals, communities and the planet herself, we need to be able to be heard constantly, regularly. We need to ensure that all interests are taken into account and we need to test lots of ways of doing it. And there are a lot of ways of doing it. As Andrea mentioned earlier on, we invited Digital Minister Audrey Tang from Taiwan to join us to talk about Taiwan. So Taiwan is one of the most impressive democracies nowadays. It, it became a democracy just 25 years ago, basically. And so it's extremely recent. And in 25 years, they managed to go up the ranking of how people participate, how innovative is democracy, through the incredible investment in technology and participations and processes. So you're going to hear way more from the minister, but um, Minister Ojitang is a particularly interesting figure. You're going to hear her story. Uh, but she actually spearheaded the change in, in democracy in Taiwan, first as a, as a hacker and then as the first digital minister of Taiwan. Let's hear Audrey Tang talk about it. Cool. So hi Audrey, thanks for having this conversation with us about Taiwan, democracy and digital democracy. So let's talk first about history and democracy in Taiwan. We know that in 1996, the first presidential election took place. We know it was also the year of the internet in Taiwan and many other places. And since then, we can confidently say that democracy blossomed across Taiwan. Why do we feel in such a short time, democracy took such a strong hold in Taiwan and is still thriving? I think there's two main reasons. One is that democracy is very new. So we started with democracy as a form of technology that everyone can improve on. So instead of a tradition that's passed by grandparents, grandparents, people simultaneously tried participatory budget, referendums, sortitions, juries, anything that you can think about in the past few decades, Taiwan probably has tried on some scale or the other. And so it made uh, democracy not something from top down, but something that can be experimented upon and collaborated upon. So that's the first thing. It increased the participation rate. And I think the second reason is that Taiwan wants to be seen uh, as different from our past because our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation did fight uh, to win those freedoms. So we need to put those freedoms to good use. Moreover, we see that around the world, democracy is on the backslide. So much as how we export agricultural technology or medical technology or things like that, we also want to let Taiwan be seen as more unique in the world by fusing digital and democracy together as one of our exports to fight the infodemic and the pandemic, for example, with this Taiwan model. Fantastic. And just out of curiosity, do you uh, think that the fact that obviously there's a stark contrast between Taiwan and um, communist China and this weight on, on the mind of citizens and so on. Do you think this factor has accelerated the adoption of, the, of democracy 
and also the care that people have for democracy. I think it made our commitment to democracy more um, well-rounded. That is to say, it's not that the ruling party is for a certain sense of digital democracy or open government and the opposition party is not for it. It's not like that, right? All the four major parties in our parliament signed on the Open Parliament National Action Plan and all made digital democracy and civic participation part of their agenda. They compete on being more open, right, from the state to the citizens. And that's partly because if someone advocates the reverse, like making the citizen transparent to the state, it will be a non-starter. People will simply say, oh, do you want to go back to the martial law or uh, do you want to be like the PRC jurisdiction? And that would not um, have any political clouds, right? So um, that means that we get to focus our energy on the practicality uh, of actually improving democracy, not to debate on some ideological um, spectrum of, you know, whether this is populism or just popularism or things like that, we, we actually get to do things. First, I think, let's take a second to dumb it down for all of us that are not tech experts. What do you mean in a couple of sentences by digital democracy? Sure. So I want to introduce first two technical terms, bandwidth and latency. Bandwidth is how much information you can provide to other people. So if you uh, vote, uh, in a ballot with just four people and you only have one choice, like in a presidential election, then that's just two bits of information, of bandwidth. Latency means you have to wait for this many time, uh, a lag time, <laughs> in order to express your next packet of information. So if you vote for your president uh, once every four years, then the latency is four years. So in a sense, democracy, as we previously practiced it, representative democracy, means that each citizen only produce a few bits of information every few years when it comes to collective decision making. Now, of course, if you add referenda, uh, that helps a little bit. You double the bandwidth uh, and the latency is shortened to maybe one half. But essentially, you're still only engaged with decision level democracy once a year or something mm -hmm. like that. But in digital democracy, we can improve the bandwidth by, for example, we're having a video conference right now and we're keeping a recording and releasing it in Creative Commons. So as a minister, all the interviews, all the lobbies, meetings, and so on with me are transcribed or published on YouTube this way. And this massively increases the bandwidth of democratic expression, because each and every one of Taiwanese citizens uh, or even non-Taiwanese citizens who work as social innovators can book uh, 40 minutes of my time every Wednesday to talk about any response they have to the social innovation they have seen in my YouTube channels or in my state transcripts. And that's like just a few seconds of real-time video exchange is yeah. already more than the bits of all the votes that we're going to vote nowadays. So it reaches everyone. And then people worry about the bindingness, like whether you have to wait for four years for the next parliament to basically deploy such suggestions uh, from the social innovators. But we have, for example, the e-petition platform that guarantees in 60 days a point-by-point -point response implementation or explain why it cannot be implemented, but maybe the civil uh, society can try it out themselves and so within 60 days. So the latency is 60 days or in a presidential hackathon, the latency is around 90 days to 100 days from an idea in the civil society voted in through quadratic voting, the new voting system with more bits uh, and end up with presidential promise five 
five every year to implement those ideas from the civil society and so on. So digital democracy is using digital technologies to expand the limitations inherent in the physical representative democratic systems in order to increase bandwidth, meaning that people can express more fully nuanced positions and ideas, and also reduce the latency, meaning that response is in the here and now, or at least just a few weeks afterwards, instead of having to wait for the next budget cycle or four years. No, I love this from a government perspective. I think it leads to transparency, accountability, um, mm-hmm. and also feeling closer, I guess, for citizens mm-hmm. to their elected representative and vice versa. You mentioned before Uber, Airbnb, uh, the licensing of alcohol and so on. Can we go, can you take us quickly for the case study of Uber? Because I think mm-hmm. across Europe, at least, that was such a mess. <laughs> like the regulation of Uber was so complicated. And I think it's due to the fact that we don't necessarily lead by consensus and we don't have a way like you do of bringing together often different opinions, different stakeholders into the room and discussing and giving them a voice to be able to come to a common conclusion. So as you put it very well, it's not just about transparency. It's about working with the people, not just for the people in a transparent way. So we crowdsourced the agenda, meaning that we asked everyone, including taxi drivers, Uber drivers, passengers, and so on, for three weeks. We usually do three weeks because that's the uh, time that we occupy the parliaments, I guess. In three weeks, people can easily, on a system called Polis, post their feelings about the Uber situation. Now, we crowdsource for feelings, not for decisions, because the importance that we learned of the Occupy movement is to make sure that people feel that there is actually a good enough consensus across previous seen as divisive camps, that those camps are kind of illusory, that regardless of whether you are in a Uber camp or a taxi camp, actually everyone cares about, for example, passengers' insurance. Everyone cares about a fair competition, so not undercutting existing meters. Everyone cares about empowering local, like in the less served rural places, the ideas of local temples or churches or co-ops, social entrepreneurs being able to form something like Uber and benefit from search pricing and things like that. That is seen as a common good by people of either camp and so on. So so I can't go on. But as you can see, as you're nodding, I think in other jurisdictions, it works like that as well. But if you look at the political debates, they tend to, on mainstream media focus on the one or two things that are kind of more ideological, like whether this is sharing economy or just gig economy, right? (laughs) Whether this is a new form of work or it's just uh, repackaged exploitation and so on. And and I I mean, this is worthy topics, but the problem is that it does not produce what I call the overlapping consensus. It's very difficult once you start with something ideological, but because we phrase the Uber conversation as so imagine that you're you're someone who drives to work and you pick up strangers based on app recommendations. You charge them for it, but you do so 10 times a day. How do you feel about this situation? And so after three weeks, we do get the rough consensus and everyone can see that actually most people agree with most of their neighbors on most of those values most of the time. And we agree to disagree on a few ideological things, but that's fine. Let's just regulate 
the rough consensus that we have. And then we gather the stakeholders, the Uber representatives, taxi union, and so on, and read to them the crowdsourced agenda, the common feelings, and only that, no other agenda. And of course, they, they're all nodding, right? They all agree with it. And so they can't help but say, okay, we'll commit ourselves to implement this kind of norm package that's already kind of collaboratively created with the civil society. And so that formed the Multipurpose Taxi Act of 2016, which is acting directly on the crowdsource agenda in 2015, the UberX conversation. After that, of course, Uber is now a legal Taiwanese taxi fleet uh, and the local rural temples, churches, and so on. They're all benefiting uh, from this new crowdsource multipurpose taxi registration. So we talked about Uber, you mentioned Airbnb, sales of alcohol, and so on. And I think those are all incredible case examples of how Taiwan managed to um, regulate and come to consensus through digital democracy. What about some other global challenges? And the reason for which I'm mentioning this is we talk to people across the world about coming together, coming together beyond borders, using digital tools and so on, um, to be able to express themselves better, to come to um, unity in a way, and consensus, as you mentioned. But we are often told, yeah, this works on some topics, but not on everything. So if you look at climate, for example, is it something that you're considering implementing? And I'm asking because I was reading up on Taiwan and the fact that it ranked, I think, 60th out of 63 countries in the latest annual climate change performance index. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so, and every country has some areas to improve on, I think. I was wondering mm -hmm. if, for example, those digital tools are something you are thinking of using or already using on global urgent challenges like climate change. <laughs> Yeah, if you go to energywhitepaper.pw, that's a model case of using this process to settle on the rough consensus of our energy transition, which was recently reinforced by the referenda results. So the, the answer is yes. But to kind of go into details a little bit, I, I don't think saying that we let's have a conversation on climate works yeah. anymore than let's have a conversation on the future of work. Yeah. works. <laughs> if we uh, start the Uber deliberation saying, uh, let's talk about the future of work, then probably it would not lead anywhere. So, so the trick here is to be as specific as possible, lead with specific cases, motivating cases that people can feel kind of their gut feeling of right and wrong, a value system, their feelings can be uh, shared more easily. But if you say, oh, let's share your feelings about the future of the planet, that's kind of very difficult, actually, to, to converge yeah. to a, a shared how might we question. So, yes, we've applied that to energy conversations. But no, we didn't talk about climate. We talked about specific energy transition routes. Yeah, but so you are using those tools in order to try to mitigate somehow the impact of climate change and the change in the environment, even though it's not on the broader agenda. So maybe that's the limitation of this uh, line of thinking, because it depends on fully informed citizenry, but because it's the internet, right? So we only have maybe 10 minutes or 20 minutes of people's time at a time. So it needs to be something specific that they already feel somewhat attracted, I guess, yeah. or distracted, uh, but at least a kind of emotional bond with the topic. If it's too abstract and impossible to explain in 20 minutes, then maybe it's not that easy for digital democratic tools to engage people with. That's really interesting. So for the benefit of our, of our audience, let's move to the issue side. I mean, obviously, digital democracy is many beautiful side, as we discussed. There are certain issues that uh, I don't know about Taiwan, but definitely in other democracies, like the United States, the UK, where we are based, 
have been definitely discussed at length. And we can refer to the case of Cambridge Analytica, Facebook, and other things that where technology meddled with democracy in a negative way. So I think that what we would like to hear from you is your general take on how did you try to edge this risk or convince people uh, that these issues, this fear of technology ruining the outcome of a democratic election or process are not based or maybe can be uh, avoided. avoided. I can sum it up uh, with this, I think, McLuhan quote, don't hate the media, be the media. So don't, <laughs> don't hate the anti-social social media, make more pro-social social media. And, and so the point here is not to convince people that somehow Facebook is good for your mental I, I wouldn't even try. But instead, saying that, you know, you, you can actually go to a nightclub with a lot of secondhand smoke, if you like, right? You're adults after all. And if you want to drink liquors, if you enjoy the company of very loud music and try to have a town hall conversation about Uber there, I mean, right, but, but it's your freedom. We're not going to stop you doing it, but we are going to build this town hall over here in the digital equivalent of university campus or digital equivalent of public library. And we're going to invite people uh, to have a much more pro-social discussion in the space designed uh, for this kind of policy making, not distracted uh, by the advertisers or distracted by any other attention economy concerns, right? So I think that's why in 2016, for the first time, we say, for the public infrastructure money uh, in our forward-looking advanced infrastructure budget, we now say digital infrastructure in the digital realm is every bit as important, as worth investing as their concrete counterparts. So previous to that, most infrastructure money uh, was just spent on things made out of concrete. But after that, it could be made out of bits. And that means that the people who specialize in building civic technologies in building the kind of spaces where it's easier to get people to listen to one another than just shout at one another, have the funding to do so. And that's very important if we are to promote digital democracy. We certainly cannot rely on the digital equivalent of nightclubs suddenly rebranding themselves or rebuilding themselves (laughs) as town halls. I don't think that's actually realistic. So the way you build a space the consensus building and so on enables people to speak in more details and to come to conclusions together. What about minorities? So in any consensus and and majority kind of building processes, isn't there a risk that it would be the tyranny of the majority or that some minority rights or freedoms would be left behind just because they, they, they are so small compared to the overall consensus that they wouldn't come into it? Do you have checks and balances to ensure that, for example, rights are always safeguarded regardless of the consensus? Well, in in polis, the area is measured by the plurality of voices and never by the headcount. The headcount means nothing. If you get 2,000 people voting exactly the same way in polis, it doesn't affect the shape at all. So basically, the algorithm looks for the plurality of voices So a small number of people, say 20 people, if they hold a view that is distinct as another cluster of 20,000 people, but their suggestions are more diverse, then it actually gets a larger area. Uh, And so I think it's all in what you emphasize in. In polis, we emphasize that the agenda must be from the people who are eclectic, 
nuanced. They need to resonate with people from all the different clusters. And we only hold ourselves accountable to answer to those ideas and feelings that resonates across all the clusters. So it becomes a friendly competition in a way, in that the people in the larger cluster, they need to bridge their values and their statements in a way that also makes sense to the smaller clusters because they're not going away and everybody can see the distance to that. And so this is unlike uh, many other antisocial corners of social media where a large number of likes somehow yeah. means that this is better and a smaller number of likes somehow means this is not good. And in Polis, if you, everybody in 20, you know, thousand people joining in a larger cluster press unlike on the smaller cluster statements, it just pulls themselves away, but it does not reduce the area of the smaller cluster. That's that's actually extremely interesting uh, because it's always been it's always a discussion, right? Like if you bring about the majority together, what happens to the minority? But if it's not about numbers, but about opinions and nuanced opinions and bridging the gap, then it kind of gamifies consensus and changes the whole game. That's exactly right. Yes. That's very cool to hear. Thank you so much for, for this explanation. I just want to linger one second on a final example that I think is very, very important for the time we live in. Today is obviously COVID. We uh, managed to go on for a very long time about speaking about COVID. <laughs> no, I know. The spirit of the new year, yes. <laughs> it is a miracle. But I still want to bring it up because obviously when you compare the numbers that Taiwan has achieved, Despite every death is terrible, but you only had 850 deaths, I believe, up to now. While the country we live in, the United Kingdom, had 129,000. So these numbers are very difficult, too different. Today, 34 new cases in Taiwan, and I think 220,000 in the United Kingdom. So clearly, we are in completely different situations. So can you tell us a bit more about how did you manage to achieve this result and how digital tools and digital democracy play the role in this fantastic result? Well, first of all, uh, in the first day of 2020, we started border inspections and health checks for all flight passengers coming in from Wuhan to Taiwan. That's at least 10 days before pretty much everyone else, right? And the reason why is that the day before, the last day of 2019, Dr. Li Wenlong's message from Wuhan that there were seven SARS cases in the Huanan Seafood Market made its way to PTT, Taiwan's equivalent of Reddit, except there's no shareholder or advertisers. It's a kind of digital equivalent of a university campus. It's a uh, student pet project for 26 years, right? Open source, co-governed, all that. And so people on PTT do not spend their time advertisements, but rather uh, triaged this uh, message very quickly so that by the next day, uh, we started responding to this new strain of sauce. And I think this shows the beauty of digital democracy because digital democracy relies on the collective intelligence, which is always several steps ahead of the government's intelligence in things like yeah. this. And so if we take away the freedom of speech, of assembly, of the press, and so on, we don't get advanced warnings or indeed warnings of any kind. And so this is how PTT, I think, established itself as for collective intelligence for many things related to COVID in the 2020 and 2021. So that's the first thing. And so then we, of course, need to take care of people 
people who are not that familiar with the bulletin board system that's mostly text-based. Uh, you talk about minorities, so inclusion is very important. So very quickly, we set up 1922, which is a toll-free uh, phone number that anyone can call using their landline, which is a huge call center that escalates a collective intelligence from people who prefer landlines, phone calls, into the same Central Epidemic Command Center, who every 2 p.m. responds to the popular calls uh, the previous day, in addition to the journalistic uh, inquiries. So, for example, 2020 April, there was a young boy call saying, your rationale mask, that's great, but all I got was pink, which is not great. All the boys have navy blue mask. I didn't want to wear pink to school. And the very next 2 p.m., everyone wore pink, regardless of their gender, uh, in the CECC press conference. And the Central Epidemic Command, uh, Mr. Chen, even stepping Panther, was his childhood hero. So with this great gender mainstreaming work, I'm sure that the boy became the most hit boy in the class where only he has the color that the heroes and heroes hero wear. Uh, and so pink mask, rainbow mask, whatever mask became a fashion statement. And that massively increased the kind of people who want to wear a mask to protect themselves against their own unwashed hands. And so that was quite sufficient to fight off even before the vaccines of the kind of entire year of 2020. But after after, of course, the alpha and then later on delta uh, variants, mask alone is not sufficient. So the GovZero community then co-created a privacy-preserving QR code mechanism to do contact tracing, but without uh, any app required. You just scan it with your own camera, it sends an SMS, toll-free to 1922, a trusted number, and that's done. But your telecom stores it, not the government. So the government doesn't know where you have been to. The telecom doesn't know either because the 15-digit random code is only known by the venue and the QR code printer, but they don't have your phone number. Uh, so through something we call multi-party security as part of the privacy-enhancing technologies, people can rest assured that after 28 days with no cases locally, their records will be deleted and there will be no kind of privacy impact on their whereabouts and so on. And so that shortened the contact tracing from more than uh, 24 hours to less than 24 minutes automatically since July. And that's how we fought out our first and really the only wave so far of the alpha and Delta variants. And then, of course, is the mass vaccination that are now helping us to fight off the Omicron variant. Fantastic. My last question on these um, kind of future-looking pieces, um, what's next? I mean, you're doing mm -hmm. lots of exciting stuff, and obviously I don't know what you can share, but are you looking to enter with, with the Taiwanese government to new areas of technology? For example, a classic example that we see these days is Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies with El Salvador's experiment of making like a legal currency with a lot of drawbacks. So what's next for Taiwan? Yeah, well, full disclosure, I'm digital minister in Taiwan, but I'm also bought in seven international um, NGOs, one of which is Radical Exchange with fellow board member Vitalik Buterin. So, so we know something about blockchain governance and, and we see uh, the blockchain governance space, not particularly about blockchain about starting a lot of small but important experiments on how to 
take the consensus to the next level. Maybe consensus on uh, intersectional social identities, maybe consensus on not just the norms, but also how the norms can be translated or compiled into regulations. So law as code, right? And there's many, many things in the distributed ledger community space that they're uh, working on. And one part that I'm really excited is in the homomorphic encryption and zero knowledge stuff, but this is not a technical conference, so I'll be brief. Uh, basically, uh, it <laughs> enables us to solve the issue of data aggregation. Previously, if you trust your clinic and your clinic trusts a cloud computing provider, it doesn't mean you trust that cloud computing provider. And with many more aggregation like this, at some point, everyone suffers a catastrophic privacy or some other breach, right? And then everyone's lo loss in the system is, is paramount because trust is very easy to break, but very hard to rebuild. And so these uh, privacy enhancing technologies that grown from the distributed ledger space because in the public blockchain, there's really no nowhere to hide, right? <clears throat> so they emphasize on zero knowledge. So the point here is maybe I encrypt my data, I offer it for you to compute, and you compute without looking in the data, much like how you can shuffle some balls in a safe without opening the safe. And then you can return that safe to me, and I decrypt and get a result, but with zero knowledge from this safe to you about the data that's actually being computed by you. So things like this offers new possibilities that let us not think about usability of data, public good of data, and privacy is a trade-off, but rather privacy-enhancing technology as trust-building, democracy-affirming technologies that can be the backbone of data collisions and data trust and so on. And so I think in the uh, Europe, I think it's called data altruism organizations or joint controllership or things like that. And I'm very excited to work with people in this space uh, to make sure that the data is good to be shared with all, but with zero privacy impact. Thank you so much, Audrey. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the great questions. That was really awesome. You can hear that Taiwan is really doing incredible stuff. And obviously, it's far from perfect. Much more must be done. But if you compare that to what we have in many established democracies, like the United Kingdom or uh, elsewhere, you can see that there is a huge gap to fill. So we have a lot to do to catch up to this standard. We didn't only speak to Audrey Tang, we didn't just take her word for it. We um, spoke to a lot of people. We talked to people who work in civil society linked to democracy and participation. We talked to hackers. We talked to Taiwanese people about it to understand what their view was. Something really struck me. I asked someone whether they think that themselves and their friends could be heard by the government if they wanted to. And they told me yes. And this is something, I don't know about you on there, but I would definitely say no. I don't know anyone that will say yes. Yeah, for me, those were the first people that ever told me yes. And I asked these questions because they told me, look, Taiwan's participatory democracy works for those that are interested in participating in the first place, for those that are able to participate in the first place. And this obviously is not perfect. Everyone should participate. It should be so awesome that everyone wants to participate. But I think just this first thing of saying, even if I'm not interested, if I want to be heard, I can be heard, is simply incredible. I fully agree. In many other countries, the only way people have to be heard is to protest, which is powerful and, and it sh should continue, but it's not easy. It requires a lot of effort, it requires a lot of guts, it requires a lot of personal risk and sacrifices, and it's not guaranteed they will work in any way, 
So I love the fact that uh, in Taiwan they found a recipe for everyone to feel included if they want to. And there are other examples across the planet. Taiwan is just one we know very well, but there are examples of things that are working uh, in other countries. For example, in Ireland, the big issue of how to regulate abortion in a country that is deeply religious was finally tackled through a citizen assembly. Uh, let's take the example of citizen assembly. Citizen assemblies are randomly assembled groups of citizens they're in a long process that uh, include information, moderations and consensus building, come to give advice or recommendation to the government on uh, issues that are deeply dividing society. Uh, a wonderful example was a city assembly in Ireland that managed to both help in legalizing gay marriage in 2015 and in 2017 finally give access to abortion throughout the island because Ireland is a very religious society so since then it was a controversial issue thanks to this wonderful participatory process abortions was made accessible. I love citizens assemblies. I think citizens assemblies can be used at so many different levels of governments from the local level and they're being tested across the world and actually already used to the national level like in Ireland even regional level, we could imagine it happening in the EU, in the African Union, across the world, and hopefully one day at the global level, as a way of understanding and coming to a consensus with people from all across the world on key societal topics. I think it's an incredible model because people get to discuss in depth, not just through social media, clicks and, and quick sound bites, but in depth about issues that concern society. And by the way, in general, they tend to come to much better decisions for all. And, and I'm saying it obviously from my very biased perspective, but I think access to abortion and marriage for all is a perfect example. And then politicians tend to enact them, for example, in Ireland better because they already have the popular backing and they're, they're taking as a result less political risk, which is not necessarily <laughs> what politicians should do, but it tends to work. Other examples exist, including participatory budgeting. And I'm having a lot of issues saying this word properly. <laughs> so participatory budgeting basically means that citizens get to allocate a certain amount and part of the budget of the city or of the country to their own projects and or to projects that the city proposes. And this is tested already and used in quite a few cities, including Paris and Madrid, for example, in Europe. And this enables people to actually allocate resources to what they think is needed, in addition to the government's priorities. I think this is a great way of funding community efforts and of making sure that you have a say over where your taxpayers' money is going in the first place. Those are not the only measures. There's a lot of other ones. I'll just give probably two more examples because I get very excited otherwise about <laughs> participatory measures. One of them includes um, interacting with elected officials. Audrey Tang, in her interview, explained how, for her, it's quite easy to interact with people, how her Wednesdays, I think, are set apart in order for citizens to be able to create meetings and talk with her and how those meetings are live-streamed. I think it's difficult to scale it up at every level of government, but there are different ways of interacting. And in Germany, in some cities, for example, they put up platforms whereby citizens can interact with elected officials and I think in some of the cities, elected officials are also graded based on their response rates, mm. and which is very interesting. Tip advisor of elected officials. <laughs> exactly. And I think actually a last one that is worth talking about, and it's both a best practice and a worst practice, is the Italian example of how you can comment on pieces of legislation as a citizen. Yeah, as an Italian, I feel compelled to jump in on this one. There is basically a software online, a website where 
if you are really interested, you can try to comment and uh, amend and propose amendments on legislations before they get voted upon and before they, they turn in. To be honest, it's very unknown and to be honest, it's also very complex to use. So it's not, it's, it's a good idea, probably not very well implemented. But Italy has different tools that are powerful and I think they should be useful for other countries, like the ability of calling referendums on certain topics. They can be triggered by the population. I was really surprised when we started studying uh, democracy around the planet not to see this basic tool to participate. I agree. I think that's a, an amazing one and it's been used recently to legalize marijuana and euthanasia. To try to legalize marijuana and euthanasia because the problem is that obviously then the government tried to either slow down the process or find issues in the process or legislate before the referendum is over. So. We are far, very far away from a good state. No, but I think it's a really interesting way of gathering popular support around key societal issues. So the reason for which we gave you all of those examples, and there are so many more to be learned from at the local level, at the national one, regional or more, is because we think they represent good snippets of what a more participatory democracy could look like. And to say it once more, the reason for which we're talking about this, the reason for which we want to make democracy sexy again, the reason for which we want to enable you to have more of a say, to be more heard, regardless of the topic, is because we think it's the only way to create a fairer world. And none of the measures we mentioned are enough, in my opinion. Implementing the Taiwanese model and adding the citizens' assemblies from Ireland and whatever other measure will not be enough. For me, what we need is to just completely change the way we think about democracy. Democracy is not just a way to be governed and to vest power into the people. Democracy is a way of achieving a better world. But for this, all voices need to be heard, which means we need to reimagine it all. From the moment someone goes to get an identity card to be able to cast a vote, to the moment someone gets on their computer to read the news and has an idea that they want to propose to their government. To the education system, it's something we haven't talked about, was how we never learned in school about how we could meaningfully participate in democracy, what our places as citizens were, and how we could change the world. Look, I fully agree. And for me, it can also be summarized in a sentence. Um, until people are on the planet won't tell you, I think I can influence this government, I think I can participate in the government of this country for real, we are failing because there is no more any real te technological barrier to block that. It's just a, a choice of how we decide to govern ourselves. Jumping to the theoretical side of things, I, I read a very cool study showcasing four advantages and three disadvantages of participatory uh, democracy. And I think it's the moment to share them to wrap up the whole conversation. So the four main advantages that have been studied across many different cases are improved governance. So actually we govern better the countries. Greater social cohesion, so people feel heard, people cross groups, lines and interact with each other so there is more sense of unity. And normally it also translates in better services, projects and programs, so the service that you use, that you get from the state are on average better. And last, there is more capacity building and learning, which means that if a government does something well, the next government is going to be able to implement it and continue it because of the fact that people participated and this knowledge is distributed beyond political parties, beyond political leaders, beyond administrations. The disadvantages are 
significant, not huge, they can be overcome, but they exist. One is the cost. Obviously, to run a good process, you need to invest money, you need to have staff, you need to have processes in place. Um, obviously, if then the outcome is very positive, this money will be easily saved as well. It's more an investment than a cost. I was going to say, if people can actually participate and it leads to better policies for everyone involved, I guess that you save a whole lot of money and lack of well-being. Absolutely. In politics, money matters, so we need, we need to say it in advance. And the second disadvantage is the non-monetary cost. So time, skills needed to build these processes. So there are parts that are not mainly financial, but they be, should be accounted for. I think the same reasoning that you mentioned column, um, applies here. If the outcome is way better than what we have, it's definitely worth it. And last but not least, and I think that actually this is very positive, is the risks associated to this process. So there is a risk of running this process badly and so invalidating uh, the outcomes or doing it in a shady way and people won't trust you. But I think this is actually part of the same topic is accountability of governments and how things are done. If things are done properly, this process works. If things are not done properly, this process do not. And actually it's an additional reason to <laughs> actually run this process very well. I couldn't agree more. So we give you a lot of examples of how to make democracy sexy again. We looked at countries from all across the world. We thought about how this can be the basis for a new democratic system, for a new way of approaching democracy, where you get to be heard, where you get to speak your mind, and where the government listens and learns from it. For me, this is the future, and this can design a whole new utopia, a more fair world for all. There's one topic that we will address in future episodes that I think is fundamental to mention quickly here, It's global democracy. For democracy to be truly lived, for democracy to be truly fair, and to be truly futuristic, we need to think about what a world government would look like. And I'm not speaking about Star Wars kind of <laughs> government. I'm speaking very seriously. A lot of topics are global and concern us all. It's the case of climate, of fiscal justice, of nuclear proliferation, and so many others. And those topics need to be dealt with together. I'll give you a quick example climate change. Take the US. It pollutes a lot. It is responsible for a lot of emissions. If you are not a US citizen, you will have no say over how the US regulates its climate policies. This is problematic because regardless, it will impact you. This is just an example of how a global democracy is needed where you, Andrea and I, and everyone else on this planet should be able to participate. And in this participation, we need to make sure that democracy remains sexy that democracy keeps on being innovated and where we keep on having a voice across the world. I believe that a lot of the examples we discussed today can be used in a global democracy as well. And we'll get back to this. And if you think about it, we already have uh, a system like the United Nations that should be representing the will of the people across the planet. Actually, the United Nations Charter starts with we the peoples as an intro sentence, but in practice, There is no way for us to contribute in any way to global policymaking. However, our money actually are spent by the United Nations. We pay taxes to our governments that send money um, to the United Nations. So in a way, we have uh, a framework to act together, but in practice, we have no voice in it. And I think this is the biggest mistake and the reason why today's world is so polarized, so divided, and it's very difficult to move together on fundamental topics like climate change, like nuclear proliferation, and many others. 
So this was how to make democracy sexy again by The Equalist. We now want to hear from you. We sent you ideas. We told you about some of the great practices that are happening across the world. But tell us what you think democracy should look like. Tell us how you want to participate. To do so, you can send us an email or voice notes that we can include in future episodes at theequitist at atlasmovement.org. Also leave us some comments and reviews wherever you're listening to this podcast. It will help us in spreading the voice, in spreading the word, and in getting more people to listen to it, which is the point. And finally, we have a little surprise. Unfortunately, we could not include the whole interview we did with Audrey Tang because it was over an hour long. It is amazing. She shared so many interesting insights, also jokes um, and cultural references that I promise you want to listen to. To have access to the whole episode, become a member of Atlas. All of the links are in the bio of wherever you're listening to this podcast and you will have access to it. So bottom line, remember to participate. Comment, like, share. It's exactly like in a democracy. The more you contribute, the more you get out of it. Thank you so much and speak next week. Thank you, live by and prosper.